regard myself as a soldier, though a soldier of peace. I have a dream that one day a soldier of peace this nation will rise up a soldier of peace live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream so a soldier of peace. Radio, covering the beat of nonviolence worldwide from the Meta Center for Nonviolence in Petaluma, California. What they're most scared of is mass non-cooperation. And when mass non-cooperation is organized and strategic and targeted well, um, it has shown again and again that it can protect democracy and challenge authoritarianism. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Nonviolence Radio. I'm your host, Stephanie Van Hook, and I'm here with my co-host and news anchor, Michael Negler. On today's show, we hear from Hardy Merriman. He's co-author of Hold the Line, a guide to defending democracy. If you go to holdthelineguide.com, it says, if you're reading this, you are likely concerned about how this year's election is taking place. We, the people, need to prepare ourselves to take on threats to democracy swiftly, strategically, and in ways that protect the Constitution and restore accountability. So they created a guide, and the guide is designed to help people from all walks of life take action to ensure that the American election is free and fair and that the results are respected. And they say there is a role for everyone in this effort, and your help is needed. That's Hold the Line Guide. Com. Let's tune in to what Hardy Merriman has to share from his vast experience working with and supporting nonviolent movements around the world and how he's drawing from that experience for this guide and this work in defending democracy in the United States. Uh, so my name's Hardy Merriman, and I recently co-authored with three other people uh, an online guide called Hold the Line, a guide to defending democracy. The co-authors are Ankar Astana. Mariam Navid and Kifa Shah. And I got connected with them in it's really quite quite a bit of serendipity. So after June 1st, I was talking with friends and had, you know, again was committed to trying to do more. And I, I put out a call to a friend and I said, I want to write something or I want to try to produce something. I wasn't even quite sure what it would be yet. And um does anyone want to collaborate on this? Because I, I felt that I needed collaborators and, and it would be better. And so she put out a call and Ankur and Mariam came in and Mariam invited Kiffa and we started meeting online in June. And originally, I wasn't even sure, you know, I thought I, we might write something short and I wasn't even going to put my name on it and they were going to lead it. And then over the course of a few months, instead of writing something short, we we just developed this amazing synergy. And before we knew it, we had a document over 50 pages and it all felt valuable and needed and good. And um, on September 10th, we, we launched Told the Line. Uh, my work focuses on nonviolent civil resistance movements around the world fighting for human rights and democracy. 
These are movements that use tactics like strikes and boycotts and civil disobedience and many other forms of non-cooperation, often against authoritarian governments. And what's interesting, and I wish this was more widely known, is that these movements actually win, these nonviolent movements win a surprising amount of the time. So, you know, throughout the Trump administration, the parallels between what he's been doing in the United States and what I've seen in other countries is pretty remarkable and disturbing. And so on June 1st, 2020, after President Trump ordered members of the military to repress nonviolent demonstrators in Washington, D.C., I decided I had to do something more. And that led the four of us to get together and write Hold the Line. My work on Hold the Line, I should note, was done independently and on a voluntary basis. So it's outside of my employer. And so I'm also speaking to you today just independently and on a personal basis, not trying to represent the views of my organization. And so this document serves as a kind of a strategy for what people have been saying, what people have been calling a potential uh, November surprise or a political coup that could take place with the Trump administration. Uh, so can you can you speak to what this strategy entails? So, you know, the first thing we want to make sure people know is that um, all the normal rules apply in this election in one sense. It's important to vote. <laughs> it's important to get out the vote. Um, so those haven't changed at all. Any efforts to tell you your vote doesn't matter or to discourage you from voting, uh, do not listen to them. It's incredibly important to vote and do all the things we normally do during elections. And then in addition, uh, COVID has created a real challenge uh, with regards to poll workers and fewer poll workers means fewer um, polling places will be open and fewer polling places uh, means likely depressed turnout, particularly in densely populated areas. And historically, that has um, affected communities of color even more. So we've also tell people right up front in the guide, if you feel safe and comfortable being a poll worker, uh, please volunteer to do that. Because um, these are all aspects of just making us have a successful, effective election. Um, and then the rest of the guide really focuses on what could happen afterwards that could be um, really challenging. Uh, if attempts are made to subvert the election. Our contribution that we, or one of our contributions that we offer is a four-step process to forming an election protection group in your own community. Um, it's our view that the infrastructure for mass mobilization, um, sort of centralized infrastructure doesn't exist. There are lots of community groups and um, state and sometimes regional groups that focus on mobilization but mobilization around a contested election and an attempted, you know, subversion of democracy um, is slightly different. You know, we try to sort of directly speak to that question about, you know, by saying, look, if infrastructure doesn't exist in your community to tap into on this, you can actually create your own. You can create your own election protection group and people may actually start tapping into you. You may become the infrastructure. And we go into a lot of detail on that because we think everyone has a role to play even people who don't consider themselves activists. We provide like detailed meeting agendas for people to start forming their groups. We lay out principles around which groups can organize. We really try to make it possible for anyone to say, okay, we're going to do this because that's, that's what very well may be needed. And then the last part is just about bringing in uh, a sort of civil resistance perspective in terms of a model of change and talking about the critical importance of uh, remaining nonviolent 
certainly being disruptive through strikes, boycotts, protests, and many other acts of non-cooperation to resist subversion attempts, but remaining nonviolent for all the reasons we know, particularly based on international cases where authoritarians often prefer violent opposition. They will attempt to provoke violent opposition because they know that gives them lots of advantages. What they're most scared of is mass non-cooperation. And when mass non-cooperation is organized and strategic and targeted well, um, it has shown again and again that it can protect democracy and challenge authoritarianism. So in Hold the Line, we make, we make a very clear point. We're concerned with making sure that the election is successful, which we define as safe, in which people can access their, you know, and exercise their right to vote, uh, which all votes are counted, which irregularities, if they emerge, are investigated and remedied. That's a successful election. If that happens, we're happy. This is not a guide that's designed to undo an election result that we don't like. If there's a legitimate Trump victory, then that's what it is. Hold the line is not there to um, to say that's the that's we don't like that result. Now let's organize against it. Um, or excuse me. Now let's organize to try to undo it. Um, so you know, civil resistance is also legal, <laughs> right? It's also an exercise of rights. Our Constitution, our First Amendment, is very clear. And our, some of our highest traditions and the achievements that we have made as a country, as, as, as all of us on this call, on this show know, uh, we're driven by civil resistance. And the, the research shows around the world, nonviolent civil resistance is the strongest single driver. If you were to look at one factor that challenges authoritarianism, there's nothing stronger than nonviolent civil resistance. And similarly, there is no stronger driver of democracy in the world than nonviolent civil resistance. We have study after study after study showing that if you compare it to any other single means, it outperforms significantly. So, you know, um, that's, you know, we will choose to exercise our rights. Um, This is not about undoing an election result we don't like. Uh, It is very much about protecting democracy. And uh, if Trump is reelected legitimately, then civil resistance may be used for other forms of accountability um, and to advocate for additional changes in the United States. But no, we're not fundamentally engaged here in something that is that is undemocratic. We're actually trying to strengthen democracy, make sure it works, make sure our government is accountable uh, to all of us. Some of the thinking for this guide came from reading about how nonviolent civil resistance had stopped coups. Um, And some of it came like military coups, which there's been a few notable um, publications on that. And then some of the thinking came from just looking at movements against authoritarianism in general. Perhaps one of the best known is the Serbian movement Ultipor against uh, Slobodan Milosevic, which actually I think is a really poignant comparison right now, because in, you know, NATO bombed Serbia in 1990. Eight, if I recall correctly. And during that bombing period, uh, there was a strong opposition movement to Milosevic that just sort of went underground and suddenly people couldn't be activists anymore and their country was being bombed and it was really unclear what was going to happen and it was really unclear what this meant for dissent. And I kind of liken that period to COVID, right? Where six months ago, people were like, what do we do? And like, how do we protest? And what does this mean? And like, we're... We're angry at our government, but also depending on it for guidance and to protect us from this disease. And so it was this really disorienting time. 
And you never would have thought from that period of extreme disorientation that a movement would have risen up and within a year and a half ended, you know, a decade long dictatorship, but that's exactly what happened. And so, you know, how did, how did they do it? Well, um, it started with Serbian youth who did decentralized organizing, basically saying, we're going to start groups based on a shared set of principles. We're going to invest heavily in training people. We're going to spread so that instead of having a top-down command and control structure, everyone's been trained and, and everyone has some orientation to our principles. And that's going to allow us to spread really quickly, but also be strategic at the same time. And that's, you know, a good chunk of, of what moved things there. And, and once the movement picked up steams, of course, the politicians join in and, you know, they play their role and, you know, things start moving uh, as a whole. And, you know, Milosevic fell. And, you know, I just want to be clear, in the United States, we are not a comparable authoritarian government compared to Serbia in the 1990s. Of course, our democracy has been incomplete and imperfect for a long time. And there are certainly people who experience this sort of functional tyranny in the society, a functional authoritarianism. You know, the benefits of democracy are not distributed equally at all. At the same time, we still have enough democracy that it's certainly worth defending. Uh, we're not in a full authoritarian uh, government, but we do have an authoritarian style president. And one thing we know about authoritarian style personalities and is that they don't constrain themselves. They tend to actually become emboldened when they get what they want and they keep pushing. So, you know, the question of what do we think Trump will do? Um, I don't know the answer. You know, do I think he's going to, you know, based on based on precedent, if passed his prologue, <laughs> then likely he's going to push things, right? And even if you think he doesn't, even if you're like, well, there's only a 20% chance he'll really do something outlandish and try to do a power grab and steal the election, uh, I'm not comfortable with a 20% chance. Um, I, we need an insurance plan. We need an insurance policy. That insurance policy around the world is organized people mobilizing when institutions fail. When institutions fail to constrain an out-of-control leader, it's ordinary people who do that job through nonviolent organizing. That's what the research tells us. That's what the case accounts tell us. That's what our own history in the, as the United States tell us. Um, so I'm absolutely confident that we can do it again. But it's also important to prepare. You talked about the importance of, you know, ordinary citizens acting, which in Serbia, which then the, then the politicians mm -hmm. got involved. Some people I've spoken to are pretty convinced that this is the politician's job to stop Trump from grabbing power. And they have confidence in the think tanks and the, uh, the institutions and the policies than the policymakers to stop him. Can you talk a little bit more about that, that line between citizens versus politicians? Isn't that the politician's job in the first place to, to defend the democracy and the role that they're in? And why wouldn't they stop him if he tried to grab power? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, um, you know, institutions, um, they, they are not inherently strong uh, they they can degrade, they can be corrupted, they can erode, they can weaken. And so the U.S. system is designed for institutions to be strong enough to constrain an out-of-control executive. But there's no guarantee, right? In fact, what we've seen <laughs> is institutions in this country weaken. There's supposed to be tension between uh, the legislative and executive branches of government. But uh, we really haven't seen that from the Republican Senate 
uh, just the opposite, which is very concerning. They're supposed to be a check and they're not, right? There's some other rules that are also not applying that normally you'd expect would. The conventional view of, of U.S. politics is that if a politician does things that lower their approval rating, that that should be self-correcting, right? So if politicians polling at 40% are in re-election, you would think they would want to do something to bring that that number up to, because that's that's generally been the rules of the game. That's also not operative right now, particularly. And so when you have a politician who's basically saying, you know, I'm going to be under 50%. Uh, I'm not going to commit to to accepting a election result <laughs> in a party that hasn't really held it accountable and regular attacks on the press and uh, numerous other attacks on institutions through the years. Um, it's incredibly concerning. And, you know, the rules, we've seen no shortage of media articles, uh, you know, documenting all the things that could go wrong from disputes about the legitimacy of the election, leading to alternate slates of electors being sent to Congress, to the risk of violence, to, uh, you know, what happens if, if you know, the Department of Justice gets involved and tries to get a court injunction to, to stop ballot counting in a certain state. I mean, there's lots of like scenarios we can spin out. We really don't know what's going to happen. Um, but it's concerning enough that, um, again, the people need to to think about backstopping here. It's really on all of us. And what I'm telling people is that, you know, when we think about what might Trump do or what might his allies do, uh, that's speculation. The real question of the next 20 days is what can we do, right? He, he's going to do what he's going to do. The question is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to be ready? Could he attempt to subvert the election? The answer probably depends more on us and our capacity to stop that from happening if that's what he wants to do. And that's something that we can, that's in a weird way, that's actually good news because we can focus on the things we can control. We don't have to be distracted by every outrageous thing on the internet, every distraction, um, distracting news story, every outrageous news story. We can follow them, but we can say our time is precious. And there are things that, people in other societies have done to defend democracy and we too can do those. And, you know, one of the things we say in holding the, hold the line is just start by mapping the power holders in your community from your governor all the way down to your County clerk and try to figure out like, are they really committed to a free and fair election to making voting accessible, counting every vote and investigating irregularities and attempts at suppression. And if they're not, let them know now. Right. You can you, you don't have to wait till November. You can start in October. Likewise, if your police have been um, have not really protected people's First Amendment rights to protest, start demanding now that they do. You don't have to wait till November. And, you know, we actually on this point um, uh, hold the line and several other collaborators and individuals um, developed a plan called the Commitment to Uphold Democracy Campaign. And uh, it's a plan that anyone can download in their community. And it's designed to guide them to identify and then put pressure on power holders, such as elected officials and police and even members of the National Guard or military, uh, to try to get them to reaffirm their commitment to democracy now. Uh, this is just wonderful, Hardy, what you've done. Let, let me start off by mentioning two features of it that I really, really like. One is I have been saying for a long time, and, and I think you have been implicitly saying the same thing, that the big 
uh, area in which nonviolent movements can advance and can gain prestige and influence is through learning. That, uh, you know, up until fairly recently, as I like to put it, bank robbers did more assessing their strengths and weaknesses and what, are, what were their best practices than nonviolent movements were doing. But uh, your organization and your work uh, have really created a big advance in learning from the events of the past and going forward in a stronger way. So that's one thing I really like about what uh, Hold the Line is doing. Another is that you are looking somewhat to the future, not just to the immediate uh, dilemma and, and the immediate crisis, but you know people are going to end up being more democratic in their community organizations if they get on board with holding the line. So I like that very much too. But it leads me to one of my several questions, which is, um, is there a way, or I'm not sure I remember seeing this in your document, is there a way that we can do the big shift that nonviolent movements often are able to pull off, which is shifting from reactive to proactive engagement? In other words, we're waiting for him, for the president, to come up with these atrocious moves, and then we're planning how to respond to them. And we have to do that. That's all true. But uh, what, in what ways could we move towards taking the initiative and rebuilding things from the bottom up or whatever? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we think actually proactive uh, mobilization is incredibly important right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's easy to just get stay in a reactive stance about, okay, we'll see. But actually, um, so my reading of the way that civil resistance has foiled coups is that basically the coup plotters depend on a sense of momentum and inevitability. Mm. So they move quickly and uh, those who doubt them start to become confused or excuse me, those, those who want to resist the coup plotters uh, become confused about what to do, whether it's worth it to resist, how to resist, and eventually maybe just demobilize because they just assume that the victory is inevitable. And so, and this is really sort of, this is very concerning. This means that people within government would know that what Trump is do, attempts to do is wrong, but they may not resist him anyway, because they may just assume resistance is futile, which means they might go along with it. And there's actually um, support to show that this is a plausible hypothesis that explains how certain people behave uh, when there are power grabs. And so what this means is that we actually need to start building counter momentum now. Mm. We need a proactive show of nonviolent force now in October, if we can, to show that we're organized and to show that no power grab is going to succeed and to, sh and to be ready to immediately respond if something does. And that's why, you know, you know, hold the line. And, and again, um, several other groups with whom we partnered, and, um, and numerous other collaborators, we had a whole campaign planning process a couple of weeks ago, came out with the, the commitment to uphold democracy campaign plan, because we say to people, look, you can start forming your own election protection team now. You can start mapping your power holders now. You can start figuring out who may be wavering in terms of their commitment to democracy or the Constitution. And we even present four demands you can make to them that they commit to. 
four for elected officials around election protection, and four for police and military around upholding the Constitution and respecting protest rights. And I'll just give you one more example. I mean, for police and military, one of the four demands is that they will agree to, or that they will recognize that they have a responsibility to protect people exercising the First Amendment from armed groups that show up to threaten them. We want that out there now. Um, as something that puts them on the spot where police chiefs have to uh, remember that they took an oath to the Constitution, uh, reaffirm what that oath means, which means protecting people who may be protesting uh, when they're threatened. Um, So all of this is stuff that doesn't require us to wait until November, but all of it can create momentum that can actually really carry through beyond November. Wonderful. And that would be done at the community level, as you see it. That's that's the, the way we thought it through anyway. Yeah. So, uh, Hardy, you've been talking implicitly about Gene Sharp's famous model of the pillars of support. Uh, would you tell a little bit about that? Sure. So um, the one way that we understand change um, in civil resistance is to not look at big institutions as a monolith, to not think, ah, oh, there's there there's the federal bureaucracy or there's some sector of the business community or there's the judiciary and think that they're all monolithic or the police or the military. But rather to say, these institutions are comprised of people. And one thing we know about people is there's actually wide variation in, in psychology. There's wide variation in people's personal circumstances and in people's experiences within these institutions. And, you know, although everyone may wear the same uniform, actually what we can't see is that what's in their head could vary quite a bit. Um, So with that understanding, you know, people have different loyalties. When you talk about a corporation, it's like, well, what part of the corporation are you talking about? Do Do you think the entry level employees have the same loyalties and commitments and interests as the senior level employees do? Do you think that the people who have to go out and do enforcement are the same as the people who are giving the orders? Um, Do you think that the people who are, you know, and and on and on and on um, in any institution. And when we understand that these big institutions hold up the status quo, but at the same time, there actually there's diversity within them. That opens up a whole set of possibilities about how we can begin to, um, I don't like the word target in this sense, but (laughs) I guess focus on, focus on different aspects within those pillars and see if we can get them to start to shift out. Um, see if we can start to get them to pause or hesitate from obeying unlawful orders or going along with an oppressive status quo, right? Um, and that can be done through messaging. That can be done through tactics. Um, in the economics, in the business sector, it's often done through shifting economic incentives by causing businesses to lose money when they're engaging in behavior that we don't like. So that's that's the point. Think in terms of, uh, break down these ideas that these big institutions are all one thing. Look for variations within them and then start your planning accordingly. Yes. And the old idea uh, of the two hands of nonviolence comes in here that one thing we haven't been always very strong about, us nonviolent resistors and so forth, is uh, holding out the hand of welcome to those who do weaken in their commitment to uphold the regime. Yep. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, in my work looking at authoritarian governments for years in, in pro-democracy and human rights movements is, 
you see defections. You see defections even among supporters of the former supporters and mm-hmm. operatives in authoritarian governments. You see defections in state media. You yeah. see defections among the military. You see defections among the police. You see defections in the business community. All these institutions that seem to be in lockstep and unmovable with a dictator, actually there are people who are willing to step out. And one of the interesting things about defections is that once they start happening, they can cascade. Yes. Yes. People will defect for different reasons. So someone may defect because they have, they changed their mind. Another person may defect because, you know, particularly again in the business community, because it's becoming less profitable for them uh, to try to hold the line uh, with an autocrat when in fact a movement, the winds of change are blowing and they start pushing on the autocrat. You know what? You should just give in. And then other people may, you know, shift for very personal reasons, maybe a child or a friend or uh, you know, other people that they know who normally don't talk to them about their role or their job start to talk to them. And it, it... Hardy, this usually builds up to a tipping point where uh, it becomes much, much easier to proceed from that point on. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the last part of the tipping is that even people who don't agree with the movement may defect because they realize <laughs> that things are going to change and they better position themselves. So they'll do it out of self-interest. Well, we'll take what we can get, right? Takes all kinds, I guess. Yeah. Hardy, I had a question to ask you about Atpour, and I, I really should know this, but it seems to me in what I understand about that movement, there wasn't much problem with a radical flank, as we call them today. In other words, most of the protesters to the Milosevic regime were not tempted to try to use violence. Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, yeah. In the in the case accounts, I've I've read and the people who are part of that movement I've talked to, a violent flank was not something that was um, really elevated as a, as a major part of it. Yes, I agree. But it is nonetheless something that we should be prepared for, mainly, I suppose, by educating and inspiring people about the power of nonviolence. Yeah, I mean, a, a violent flank is, uh, is, feels like it's always a risk that has to be prepared for. One should never assume that um, just because one is nonviolent and one's movement is nonviolent, uh, that A, questions of is it permissible to begin violence, to begin being violent won't come up, or B, that, uh, you know, the, your opponent may try to plant provocateurs to try to paint you as violent. So it's all, yeah. you always need to be cognizant and aware of, of that potential and think proactively about how you can um, limit it. Couldn't agree more. And that's a lot of the training that's going on now is a bystander intervention training and so forth. They're, they're at least starting to make some preparation against that contingency of uh, agent provocateur or some kind of somebody who loses it, <laughs> throws a Molotov cocktail at the last minute. We're, we're trying to train people how to deal with that situation, as far as I'm aware. Is that also your impression, Hardy? I mean, it's my impression that Trump would love to provoke violence, will do things to try to provoke violence, and will win if if uh, he succeeds yeah. in painting um, those who are trying to support democracy as violent. I mean, he this is the dictator's playbook. It's standard. Um, you know, violence has very standard effects that are documented across cases. If you're a member of the security forces, it tends to reinforce your loyalties. When people are threatening you, training kicks in. And at that point, you you start 
operating more based on training. You also are less likely to defect because uh, you're concerned that your defection may lead to chaos or you may be defecting towards people who want to hurt you. Uh, the center of society that may be even passively sympathetic to what you're trying to do starts to move away and become more afraid when they start to think that you represent violence or, or chaos. Um, part mass participation goes down. Uh, it's documented when there's a violent flank on average of 17%. Um, and I would argue that will probably be disproportionately among certain groups. For example, it may not go down as much among men as it might among women or uh, among elders or among children. And, and so it starts mm-hmm. to skew the composition of the movement. In the meantime, you reduce the risk that violence is going to backfire. Whereas if you remain nonviolent, Violence is more likely to backfire. It's more your your movement's more likely to be participatory, and the data tells you that you're more likely to win. So, so there there it is as I see it. Well, that is terrific. Now, are we doing pretty well on getting that information out to people? Um, I I actually think that there is a significant push right now in that direction, and I think the thing is is that when you make the case that nonviolent uh, means are preferable for you you have to it takes a few different kinds of arguments right so some people will really be receptive to an argument about data Mm -hmm. others um, will need a fuller understanding of okay fine even if i accept what you're saying here can you explain to me how civil resistance is going to work how nonviolent resistance will work Um, because if their concept of nonviolent resistance is based on protest and the image they have in their mind is protesters being beaten by people who will not show remorse, um, then it's pretty hard to convince them that nonviolent resistance is going to win. So you have to get into the pillars of support and how at a macro level, even while there may be incidents of one-sided violence, um, in that moment, it can be very damaging. And yet for it can, it can appear very damaging to the movement. And yet over the long term, backfire is real and actually um, often hurts the perpetrator of violence yeah. uh, more than the movement itself. Yeah. So so it, I think it takes engagement um, and really being willing to explain um, and, and, and dialogue. I guess it takes another kind of willingness too, and that is a willingness to undergo a certain amount of suffering if it comes to that, because this is an intense situation. And if we play our cards right and make our presentation to the uh, reference public the general public correctly, then in the Gandhian principle is that the self-suffering that we willingly undergo uh, will add up to a powerful force in our favor. Mm-hmm. So, Hardy, I'm, I'm really uh, quite thrilled with all of this. The next step for someone who uh, does see the need for this and does want to jump on board would be to go to that document. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, so in terms of starting an election protection team, a few things. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to call yourself an activist. You just have to find a few people who care as you do and are concerned as you do, and that's enough to start. You know, I think right now is a very confusing time. It's a scary time. And when we're confused and scared, we tend to doubt ourselves. We tend to look for others to, to, to gravitate to who may have a better idea, or we tend to look for validation or someone to legitimize what we're thinking. Do the best you can. 
You have talents, you have skills, you have people you know. Find them. You have assets and strengths. Use them. Organize. You know, what we tried to do in the guide again is to give very detailed instructions of here's the agenda for your first meeting. Okay, in your second meeting, here's your agenda, and you're going to get into mapping your power holders. In your third meeting, you're going to get into planning tactics. And in your fourth meeting, you're going to sort of track where things are, rehearse, consider your plan, you know, possibly modify it. Or, or proceed ahead. And so perfection is not what's needed here. Well-intentioned people who want to do their part and who are, who are ready to take some kind of action um, is what's needed. And what's really interesting is that when you work with a group who you trust and who um, it can push you in ways that are really helpful that you didn't even know. You know, the three outstanding people that I have had the privilege of working with on Hold the Line or people I didn't know uh, four or five months ago. And when we started, as I mentioned earlier, um, we thought we might produce an article. The, the reason we produced Hold the Line as a guide is because we worked well together and we were all able to spur each other on. That was my experience. I know that's an experience others have had with groups. So take the first step, even if you're not totally confident, and see where it goes. Wonderful. Hardy, one of my favorite philosophers is Sally Gurner in North Carolina, and she said, the way to get big is to stay small and well-connected. Love that. That's great. Great. Hardy, thank you for your time today. And how can people find Hold the Line and get involved? Sure. So um, they can go to holdthelineguide.com, and that will have uh, all the information that they need. Um, they're welcome to also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is the red line guide for both of those. Um, they're also welcome to email us at defend at hold the line guide, uh, dot org. I don't know why our email address is dot org, but actually when you go to our <laughs> website, go to dot com, we have to face this. This is one of the things about an all volunteer effort. <laughs> Like, there's a lot of things we should do. We can think of a hundred ways to make our website better, do this or that. But like, these are four people who volunteered and did this. And we're really proud of what we did. And the response has been amazing. Um, And so we're really actually depending on people to go and share it. We don't have some big social media plan or a lot of people working for us to do this. Um, The way Hold the Line is spread has been based on attraction. And a lot of people have said really great things. So let's keep pushing it. So holdthelineguide.com. And if you like it, uh, please feel free to share. Uh, Thanks. We were just talking with Hardy Merriman, one of the co-authors of Hold the Line, a guide to defending democracy. You can find it at holdthelineguide.com. Let's turn now to the nonviolence report with Michael Nagler. Greetings, everyone. This is uh, the Nonviolence Report, Nonviolence News and Commentary. Uh, we're again experiencing unprecedented unanimity across uh, mainstream groups, uh, progressive counterculture, or whatever you want to call us, and uh, organizations like the American Sustainable Business Council, for example, and uh, Mediators Without Borders, or Mediators Beyond Borders are all uh, focusing on the election crisis and trying to assure us that we do have a free and fair election. 
And today, here's what the mediators group has just said. With just two weeks remaining until Election Day, a broad coalition of advocacy and business groups back on Tuesday last week urged state election officials to publicly commit to a list of actions that would guarantee a free and fair election. Uh, we're also involved in an effort to have them go a little bit further and go on through the present electoral crisis season to see about necessary reforms so that this doesn't happen again. Uh, meanwhile, there's another hopeful trend. Uh, apparently, while, you know, us older generations tend to favor what's sometimes called nowism, focusing on the short term, it seems that uh, students and young people who are getting active are uh, much more focused on the long term and the future, which makes a lot of sense and is a very hopeful trend because, uh, as we know, real nonviolence tends to take the long term into account. And if you only take the short term into account, you end up reaching very often for a violent solution. This is one of the reasons why a constructive program is so important in nonviolence, because that builds for the future. So let me share two uh, events that are kind of contrasting and then go into our uh, regular list of resources. Uh, for one, uh, under the impressive title, Democracy Has Won. So it's one year after there was a right-wing coup in Bolivia in which Evo Morales, the very, very popular, uh, progressive, uh, indigenous-leaning president, was deposed and is now in uh, exile in Argentina by his own choice. But there was an election, and a socialist by the name of Luis Arque has won with a very substantial majority. And Morales writes from Bolivia, brothers and sisters, the will of the people has been asserted. I can't help making a comment here, which is maybe that Bolivia will show us the way. On the other hand, on somewhat more distressing news, you may have heard about the King's Bay Plowshares. These are seven activists who uh, did a little bit of damage at a anti during an anti-nuclear protest at a Georgia naval base. And that was back in 2018. Well, they have now been sentenced uh, for rather lengthy terms. Fortunately, some of them have already been in prison for so long that the terms will probably be fulfilled when it's handed down. But in regard to one of them, Father Stephen Kelly, the judge made this interesting comment. Father Kelly, it has been clear to me you are sincere in your beliefs. However, I would be remiss to discount the nature of the offense that we're looking at today and the risk to safety that you knowingly undertook. <laughs> um, whose safety, I wonder, was really risked? But anyway, it does give us some insight into the way the legal system has to look at uh, events that we feel called upon to undertake in the nature of civil disobedience. Uh, this brings up, of course, the whole question of property destruction, which has always been sort of a borderline, a gray area for me. I think the missing element in property destruction is persuasion. 
if you destroy someone's property, first of all, you are kind of infringing on their rights. Second of all, you're putting it beyond them to choose. Now, to persuade people to renounce these things is the ideal way. That is persuasion rather than coercion. At the same time, we all know that sometimes you just don't have the time uh, to wait on such processes. So that leaves us with, uh, I guess, each case has to be judged on its own merits. So for resources, I want to highlight that Nonviolent Peace Force is having Nonviolent Cafe. They had the last one. Uh, or will have one in a couple of days on October 22nd, and they'll be discussing how to use nonviolence to create safe communities, and you can register for those nonviolence cafes on their site. I wonder what they serve at a nonviolence cafe. Uh, anyway, to get back to Mediators Beyond Borders again, they are doing a spiritual and inner peace building presentation Wednesday, November 10th at noon Eastern time. Uh, they have launched something called the Trust Network to prevent violent conflict before, during, and after the U.S. 2020 elections. And they are pleased to announce that they're now offering basic and advanced training on early warning, early response. E-W-E-R. So that's another category of nonviolence trainings that's being offered uh, at a very much enhanced level now in this emergency. Uh, there will be a Kingian nonviolence mini workshop that uh, Kazuhaga, who has been on this program, will be offering on November 14th. And that can be looked up at the East Bay, East Point, Peace Academy, East Point Peace Academy being the anti-matter to the West Point War Academy. <laughs> so uh, here's some interesting events. The federal government and the fossil fuel industry have announced that they're going to discontinue seismic blasting in the oceans. Seismic blasting is in a way parallel to the effect of uh, microwave radiation, the type that, that we use in cell phones and so forth, on, for example, bees. They are radically disoriented by uh, that kind of radiation. And it's, it's said that the, the fastest way to kill a beehive is just put a cell phone in it. So while we're doing that to the air, uh, in the ocean there's this blasting, which I gather is a, a geological technique to detect oil deposits, but it plays havoc on seagoing mammals, whales and dolphins, who depend on sonar to find out where they are and, and get their way around. So uh, <laughs> I'm sure we've all heard of the butterfly effect, you know, where a butterfly flaps its wings in one part of the world and change cascades out from that and it becomes cataclysmic in proportions. Well, here's another kind of butterfly effect, and I thank Nonviolence News for this report, and that is that a federal appeals court in Texas, San Antonio, to say something else about that town in a second, 
has ruled that the Trump administration's attempt to build a border wall through a South Texas butterfly sanctuary violates the property rights of the conservationists who run that sanctuary. Happy to say that also from San Antonio, two policemen, and they've done a film called uh, Joe and Ernie, Crisis Cups. I know about this film because it was screened along with mine at the United Nations Association Film Festival just this week. They've started a uh, mental health unit in the San Antonio police station. And with a little bit of funding and a little bit of staff, they have saved many, many episodes from going down in a hail of bullets uh, by just talking to people. And, and it's just such a simple principle and so basic to nonviolence. He says, when we get one of these calls and describe what's going on, this person has a gun and the word gun leaps out. And we've had, as police people, 60 hours of training in how to use a gun and six hours of training in how to talk to people. So they are now in high demand because of the Black Lives Matter protests and the emphasis and focus attention to uh, policing. Unfortunately, if going abroad now in uh, Thailand and Belarus, uh, the um, standoffs are still going on where the protesters refuse to stop and the government continues to repress. So in Thailand, for example, in Bangkok, protesters shut down the entire Bangkok transit system. And uh, recently, and, and this was after a chaotic night when riot police used water cannons on protesters, as have been used just recently in this country at the southern border, uh, people protesting for immigration rights. So the observation I want to make here is that attrition can be a serious problem for nonviolence movements, just as it can always be for labor movements, because we don't have the resources to give up our work, give up our school, and just go on with this. So the answer is to have a variety of techniques. And I sincerely hope, though I don't know exactly how to reach them, that we could get to these people with uh, the suggestion that they try something else, maybe dispersive instead of collective act and so forth. On the other hand, we have been talking to you from time to time about Sudan, and I'm happy to say that there's a good possibility now that Sudan will come off the terrorist list, which is critical for them. And it actually does seem to be happening today. Uh, they need to come up with some funding to pay for the past previous uh, actions that were carried out when they were still under the dictatorship. But with the critical thing that that country needed to rebuild was to come off that list so they could get back in communication and trade. And here in Turtle Island, uh, indigenous environmental networks have gotten a boost. A thousand activists hit the streets recently in Halifax in Nova Scotia to show their support for uh, Micmac, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Micmac harvesters uh, in Nova Scotia. Uh, they launched a small fishery and it has been, you know, seriously uh, terrorized by 
uh, non-indigenous groups who are just afraid of the competition. But these activists turned out in support, and we will see how that develops. I hope to tell you more about it in our next episode. You've been listening to Nonviolence Radio. We want to thank our mother station, KWMR, to Matt Watrous, Julia White, Annie Hewitt, Waging Nonviolence, to all of our listeners, all of the people that help promote the show and support us through the Pacifica Network. And to everybody, until the next time, please take care of one another and remember to vote. You're my life, you're my breath, you're a smile, you're my guest, you're the earth, you're the sun, you're the grass, you are love, you're my hands, you're a bug, you're my eyes, you're a hug, you're the light in the dark, you're the spark, you are fun, you're my mom, you are water, you're the stars, you're my daughter, you're my friend till the end, you're my dreams, you're my father, you're the ants on the ground, the miracles that surround, I'm feeling it all around, the hemisphere in the clouds, you're my pain, you're my sorrow, you're my hope for tomorrow, you're the strength when I'm hollow, you're the path that I follow, you're the blessings that exist, the small things that are bliss, the gift to realize that All that I am, all that All of this magic and spread the love so everybody can have it Doesn't matter if I'm rich or poor If I got a family or if I'm all alone Bad things happen, I can just complain and moan But there's a million things that I can be grateful for
that exist, the small things that are bliss, the gift to realize that everything is a gift.